too. You're just too Charisse, tall. Charisse, Charisse, that's too not tall. the answer I was looking for. I just smashed my knee into the bottom of this bar. All you can say is nobody put that bar there. Well, because the question was who put that bar there is what you said. <sighs> I, 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 am, I have sympathy for you and your shins. Is that no, what you that's want? No, that's my knee. That's my knee. Your knee. How's it going? Pretty good. Today is my birthday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday, Cherise. You actually already knew that. Uh, I knew and then I forgot. No, it's fine. But thanks for reminding me. It's not a big deal. I just thought it was funny that we're recording today so that I get to say send, it. Send Cherise your birthday wishes then. By the time this comes out, you know what? I'll appreciate it whenever they come. You can say happy birthday yeah. to me any day of the year. Really? I'll take it. No, why not? It's a pretty open invitation. Okay, fine. Within three I, months. Whoa. I was going to say plus minus like four days, five days max. What? Yeah. That's pretty limited. To be fair to you, I've completely forgotten what day your birthday is fine. as well. Unnecessary. What's going on with you? Uh, not much. Just sorting out everything. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what kind of answer. It's so vague. Uh, I don't know. I've been working out of my uh, to-do list quite diligently as of late. Are you trying to trim things out before you fly? Yeah. Uh, you know what's funny is that I used to have a tag called Focus. Yeah. And now Focus has needed another more important tag called Urgent. <laughs> so Focus still has stuff I need to do. I think I should change Maybe Focus too, to Daily. I think you're too liberal with the word Focus. Yeah, I'm going to change it to Regular because it's more like regular occurring tasks. Yeah. I, I feel like Focus should be things that require... I always thought that meant... Longer amounts of attention. I had it more like focus on this. That's not how I interpreted that tag. My hey, don't, goodness. Don't tell me how to be productive, okay, Sharice? I don't appreciate it. Whatever works for you. We're all different people. All right, let's get it going. Because last making it up was like, it started at 15 minutes and then I trimmed it down to 12 minutes for the intro. So oh, I like talking about things with you that aren't okay, directly our material. I had a couple things I wanted to say. By the time this comes out, we'll already have seen the results, but we put up a survey in response to This Is America. I wouldn't even call it a survey. I think a survey is a disservice. We put out- A mini interview. No, an open mini interview. A, we basically put out like an open-ended form for people to fill out if they felt like it to write about their thoughts on This Is America. And it's only been like what? This is America. Not by even 24 hours Gambino, since we put yes. it out and gotten a pretty good responses. So that's Some encouraging. Smart people out there. Yeah. Did you read the Tanahisi Coates essay I shared no, I, in Slack? I wanted to. You need to. Yeah. It's really I good. I started it, but it was like I saw it last night at like 1 a.m. and I was like, I'm going to sleep. It's really good. I have it's seen not just quite a bit of people coming out and denouncing uh, Kanye. Right. Sorry. Yeah. The essay is. Um, called I'm not Kanye I'm not, I'm not black I'm Kanye and it's by Tana Hisi Coates in The Atlantic but what I wanted to say in relation to This is America is that I think it's relevant because I was questioning myself you know why is this relevant to me as a Chinese person sitting in Hong Kong right now and I think that essay is a good way to think about all minorities that reach celebrity status reach like a certain amount of fame. So that's all I'll say Got until it. you read it. Yeah, I, I was throwing around this joke that everyone's the same until they change tax brackets. 
Yeah, the essay is kind of about that. What else do we have on there? Our friend Jeremy Kirkland just launched Blamo season four. Blamo is his podcast about fashion and culture and people who shape that. Um, and the one that just came out is with Eugene Tong. I was listening to it this morning. And then I was like, parts of the interview remind me of you. I don't know if that's I don't know. I, I, I was hanging out with Eugene right before I left New York on my last trip just a few weeks ago. And I feel we're kind of like these, I hope he doesn't take offense, but kind of like these old souls that came up in a different era and just look at things differently. Yeah, I I don't know if it's because you guys share the same first names. I was like already, I was already looking for similarities, but there are some like monochromatic wear, like what you got, like apparel. Yeah, we, uh, he was wearing all black too (laughs) when I met him for brunch. And then he's, you know, long been associated with one publication to the point where people think of that publication in connection with him. And same for you. And I don't know, that's, but it, Blamo, regardless of Eugene, Eugene's similarities is a good podcast. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah. It makes me excited about the people in fashion. Less with like, I mean, the end product, I think, in fashion is something you... Uh, yo, actually, you know what? It, I think that's Kirkland's point. I think it's like very celebratory. Yeah. It's very person-focused. And yes, they do get analytical at points, but not it's not meant to be like this severe criticism of fashion and culture. I think what it definitely hits on is the three P's. Are you familiar with the three P's? You're about to tell me. Yeah. People, process, product. I'm pretty sure Alex Malin didn't come up with that, but that's where I heard it from. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like literally last week, but it makes a lot of sense. And I think most of fashion media today is focused primarily on product without any process or people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, what else we got going on? That's it for me. What about you? Uh, oh, this is something that is has interestingly come up via different channels or different people that I've been speaking to recently. And it's long, this is like kind of like a mini aside topic, but I think a lot of people these days are generally like looking for some sort of direction in their life, blah, blah, blah. Ugh. That sounds a little insensitive for me to to reduce it to that. But like generally, I, I've encountered a fair amount of people that have sort of ended up in this place where they're looking for just what the next steps in their lives are, right? And a lot of them sometimes lament that, oh, it's very difficult to make a change. But I think that change is really just like a binary thing. It's either you do it or you don't. You know, yeah. if, it, if you care enough about it, you'll do it. And if you don't care enough about it, then you won't do anything. You might still feel shitty about it that, oh, like I'm procrastinating making change. But I think people just need to understand that the process of, even the process of doing will arrive you further along than not doing it. And some people just like don't understand that or they don't want to go through the rigor of it. Well, I also think it's because- I think I need to take that back because like the people Mm -hmm. I was speaking to, like I think they understand it, but I think they just need to get through the mental barrier of just starting and knowing that I don't know where I'm going, but starting. Yes, yes. Because I think psychologically, when you feel like you want to change, you want some big change now and you want it to be tangible, but that's just never how anything happens in your life. Like you're saying, you have to make the first move towards change, whatever that move looks like. Yeah. And I think that that change is... It's kind of interesting because if people are openly 
signaling to their friends, telling their friends that they're unhappy. Like I think if they're your real friends, they'll just support you and trying to figure it out. That I think is pretty critical. I don't think people understand that when things get tough, like, I mean, if you've built out like real friendships, like that's where you can kind of lean on them. I mean, yeah, like, I do have friends that come to me as well and say that they want change. But as as much as I encourage and support, you know, and make suggestions, ultimately it's up to them to do whatever it is, you know, find a new job or go to the gym or I don't know what, like, I, I can't force them to yeah. actually do it. Totally. Should we get started for the day? Yeah. You want to go first? All right. My topic this week is Sagmeister and Walsh launch Sorry I Have No Filter which is basically a line of merchandise to champion creative women. So famed designer Jessica Walsh and Steven Sagmeister, they partnered together to release this pretty extensive line of merchandise. And it's something that directly supports an initiative started by Jessica called Ladies Wine and a Bit of Design. Pretty catchy name. I like that. It's just called Ladies Wine and Design. Uh, As per that thing, it's Ladies Wine and a Bit of Design. No, it's design. I Ladies, mean, wine, and design. I'm on the site. At the very bottom? Do you, I mean, I copy and pasted it. It's ladies, wine, and design. Can you just double Trust check? Can you do a, I'm on the site. No, can you do a control F, Apple F, and just do a search and see in what context it comes up as... Trust me that the group is called Ladies, Wine, and Design. But if you go to her, her other one, it says... Do you know what I'm saying? It's like probably written like that in the context of a sentence where it was like <laughs> the profits go to support... Ladies wine and a bit of design, but the group itself is called Ladies Wine and Design. Does this make sense? Yes, it makes sense, but it just felt it was branded as such. It's not. It's called Ladies Wine and Design. <laughs> All right, that's that's incredible. That's out. incredibly embarrassing. But, anyways, this is regardless. Start over. Let's move past this. Anyways, um, so what spawned this whole movement was in the past, Jessica's received a lot of hate. Uh, and comments that suggest her success is because of her looks and who she has slept with, which is kind of, how do I put this? And this is very, the visceral reaction is, yeah, I could see it. Whether that's insensitive or not, I don't know. Maybe I should be less worried about that and just like talk about it. So she kind of addressed this in a pretty long essay. She said, these kinds of comments don't hurt me. I know too well the years of extremely hard work, persistence, risk-taking, and hard decisions that got me to my position today. But these comments disappoint me because of this blatant sexism all too often perpetuated by other women in the industry. It's not just faceless Twitter trolls spewing this sexist hate. Many friends in the industry have told me about how other women designers spread misogynistic rumors about me. I was talking to a friend about it the other day who pointed me to this girl who wrote about me here. And that girl was Anita Magana probably mispronouncing that. I apologize. So she wrote this piece back in 2015 and it was about an experience after seeing Walsh in Portland speak. So one of the particular moments in the talk was a middle-aged lady asked Jessica how she spent her money, which is kind of weird. It's like, why does someone need to ask that? Would you ask another man that? I guess that's kind of where the direction of the piece was going. And the conclusion that Anita made was, the conclusion I arrive at is this. If a woman is young, traditionally attractive, and successful in design, she is immediately written off. When will the design community look first and foremost at a woman's work, credentials, and talent instead of her looks, money, and status? To me, I I think that seeing it all play out is something that I know exists, but I've never seen it firsthand. But I, I acknowledge it. And I think it's good to see 
these types of things that further contextualize it. You know what I mean? I think the product itself, while it's probably, I'm probably not the target demographic for the product. I think it's an interesting way to just develop all these inroads. And that's the one thing I've kind of realized is that when you're trying to spread a message, there is almost a need to develop multiple channels. Yeah, I just wanted, before we continue, I just wanted to clarify the connection between Jessica's essay and, sorry, I have no filter. So Jessica wrote this essay in 12 Kinds of Kindness, um, which included a link to the response that you just read quotes from. And then in the same essay, she talks about starting Ladies Wine and Design. Like in, in the long essay about receiving hate comments, She's starting Ladies Wine and Design as a way for women to support women, creative women to support yeah. creative women because she felt like a lot of the hate that she was, and this is something you actually glossed over, a lot of the hate that she was receiving, she realized the pattern Fellow is that it came women. from women as opposed to men who were saying, who were like writing her off for being pretty and saying that she'd slept to get to where she was, that she'd identified that was actually a problem where for whatever reason, women creatives were not, actually supporting women creatives. So she started Ladies Wine Design and Sorry I Have No Filter is intended to financially fund it because it's it's essentially a nonprofit. Like they host free events. So I just wanted to make the whole thing clear. And also Jessica and Sagmeister work together. Uh, So they, yeah, it's a little bit misleading to say like they partnered together for this because they have been long-term partners. Like their studio is called Sagmeister and Walsh, yes. like not just one or the other, but they work in the same. Got it. They work as an entity. Yeah. 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 So I think that- Lots of names. So yeah. for people unfamiliar with the design world. Yeah. I think what makes this particularly timely is that I also came across this article that I shared in the briefing by Jessica Knoll, another Jessica. And it was highlighting the- this sort of double standard where if women want to pursue affluence the same way men do, they're looked upon differently. It's looking at the overall topic and thinking, hey, you know what? This is something that if we, almost if we really want it, we need to find a way to break down the barriers and the connotation around it. And this is something that I found really interesting from Jessica. Another quote that's kind of long. I have always wrestled with what has been expected of me as a woman versus what I expect of myself. The conflicting messages of millennial womanhood to be ambitious but never bossy, strong but skinny, honest but polite, supportive of my fellow sisters' successes while the culture gets off on girl fights. Only in fiction have I been able to create women who aggressively seek money and power the way men seek money and power. Women who will kill to protect their measly slice of the pie. Women who will kill to protect their measly slice of the pie. So what I'm fascinated to see is that do you feel there's like an underlying shift towards how women communicate and how they're positioning themselves in their respective industries? Because I would say that in general, the whole project they put together is quite confident. Even the messaging itself, right, is quite confident. Do you think that this is the necessary step required for women to, I guess, gain more traction in their respective fields? Hmm. I think something that... You know, something you said at the beginning is that beginning of this topic while we're talking about it is you said, you know, Jessica Walsh gets flack from people because they write off her success for being young and pretty. And you said, oh, I don't know if it's insensitive, but I can see it. And I don't think the positioning is to not say it's insensitive, like, because I think Walsh addresses this herself. Like, it would be naive for us to expect her to get no criticism like this. 
like yeah. by admitting that people will say you only got to where you are because you're young and pretty and dress well is to be realistic about the situation. And I think us talking about it in that way isn't isn't contributing to like, it's clear that we disagree, right? With her haters, but it's good for us to put it out in the open that people are making assumptions about her like this. Yeah. Because it's, it, you know, it, it's like wearing rose colored glasses if we pretend that that's not happening. Yeah. And I think her products, like, sorry, I have no filter, which she did with a collaboration of other designers as well. So it's not just one perspective is like about owning the fact that people are going to hate on young women for being, you know, a multiplicity of things instead of fitting inside the box that people want them to fit within. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, some of the things that, it, it's weird because there's a lot of like nuance and layers here to imply that her success for like the haters to imply that her success is defined by her ability to um, engage with people in the right circles, et cetera, et cetera. Does that suggest that men are fundamentally easy to crack as well? Yeah, I think so. I think it's disparaging of everyone, right? Like also by saying, it is such a strange thing because if you're saying, oh, Walsh only um, became partners with Sagmeister in a studio format is because they were sexually involved is to also suggest that like, Sagmeister doesn't care if he partners with that's someone who's genuinely creative. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. I wasn't sure how to... No, I totally agree <laughs> yeah. that it's like a weird it, way to criticize someone because you're just like criticizing... It just you're, reduces you're the like whole industry. gunning down everyone in the industry, you know? Yeah. Like taking them all down. Like, oh, it's so... Nobody actually cares about the quality of work here. Like, that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I was like curious. I'm thinking like, it, it's kind of doing no one a service. No, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And but, I think that when you I'm glad I'm glad you you came to my aid there because I was like thinking about it but I was like not sure how to communicate it. Cuz I think that is one thing that's troubling it's I mean this is this is something that arguably is seen across most creative industries where there's sort of a a difference between men and women perhaps which arguably is a lot. I think it's just that we were talking about this before we went on the record. I think there's just a more narrow image of what a successful creative woman should look like, should behave like, and what you know their Instagram should look like as a respectable creative woman. And so when someone doesn't fit within that, then they get disparaging remarks. And I just think it's like, it's okay if you don't like someone's work, you know, but I just don't see the reason why your personal feelings on you know, the way she dresses or her captions like goes into the quality affects like your judgment on the quality of someone's work. Do you think the way that women are raised and girls are raised from a very early age is something that will fundamentally need to shift for them to also effectuate change as they enter the professional fields that they're interested in? One thing that sticks with me from her essay And I wanted to also shout out these stats that she put in it, which is that, you know, only 9.6% of art directors are female. Only 5% of CEOs are female, yet women control 80% of consumer spending. You know, so like women are controlling where the money is, but aren't the people making the decisions at the top of businesses that are producing products. Like, yes, obviously one part of the problem is 
you know, society as a whole. But the problem that Jessica is focusing on is women not helping other women. I don't know if it's, like, I can't remember being subconsciously taught to like not support women, but I do even question myself, like, do I subconsciously not do it out of self-defense? Well, you, you have a feeling and you understand that the industry itself has, there's a comparatively smaller piece of the pie for women. So naturally the fight for resources is higher. So imagine if the pie itself was 50-50, then you would have a greater allocation and distribution, right? Do you ever look at it like that? Like if I'm being totally honest, I think that that's somewhere underlying in me is that is that recognition that the pie is only so big and only so many women can own it. But logically, like I think somewhere, you know, deep down that feeling lies. But logically, I know that that's not true. That in order for all women to secede, we have to support as many of each other as possible. And actually that's the same thing I would say about, you know, the creative industry at large. The creative industry being a smaller segment compared to everybody else in order for creatives to succeed like in Hong Kong, we have to all support each other's endeavors so that there can be more of us. So basically one's a short-term versus long-term play. Yeah. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. And and logically I know that. Like I would always say that, that that's what I think. But I do wonder if, but I do wonder if somewhere ingrained in me and other women who are, you know, also thinking logically like myself and would say the same things that they believe in still feel that we are competing with each other. And I assume you've never felt that way. Never really had to feel that way. It is interesting to me that you picked this topic because I feel like you intentionally picked a challenging subject for yourself. I just felt that maybe subconsciously too is like that Jessica Knoll thing was kind of like something that really kind of resonated with me on the basis that, yeah, you know what? It's true that there's a certain expectation that comes with how women should behave in a professional work environment. I don't know. I just feel like they don't have as much ability to explore like a true personality because society and culture is trying to define their personality from the get-go. So I'm just interested to see how the diversity and thought processes and personalities can just sort of further shape industries. So maybe it was more of a practical take on it, but I just, I'm always curious because I'm interested to see amongst all the tactics to create a more equal sort of work work environment, like which ones work the best? Does just being the nice person, does that work? Does being more aggressive work? Does going the merchandise route? Obviously these are like not necessarily competing tactics or strategies, but they're just different things. And I'm just interested to see what would generate the most sort of value. I'd be interested in that too. For you yourself over the last, let's say five years that you've been working, have you seen changes? Or have they happened so slowly that nothing really stands out? And when I mean changes, I mean I mean the treatment of you as a designer, the opportunities, pay, et cetera. What I, in my personal experience, have seen is I genuinely do think that I'm paid fairly mm-hmm. and that I have been paid fairly by my different clients and bosses, et cetera, on, on I, I think... I believe at least like on par with um, someone of my skills who is male. I could be wrong, but I generally get the feeling that it's not that far off. I do think the thing that I still feel is 
still very much in the minority, like yeah. when I started to now. And it is so different from being in school where in school, especially the school I went to, I went to Parsons was easily like 70% female yeah. student population. And it's just like, where did all the girls go in between graduating and then my professional life? Yeah. And I just don't fully but, understand that change. But I also think maybe it's a personality thing too. Like you're confident and outspoken. Just don't see as many women in all ranks, you know, entry level, senior yeah, level, so et cetera. You're not seeing that sort of carry over. over. Yes, overall. And I do wonder like, you know, is there something that happens in between graduation and like your first job that somehow leads to women deciding, actually, I'm not going to go into the creative industry. I'm just going to pick an, an office job. So I don't know. That's what, that's what I, I wonder still. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting is that, and maybe it's just within, within our group of friends, but everyone always sort of half jokingly says, oh, women are way more responsible. You know what I mean? I think that's an interesting thing because obviously responsibility and trust are critical things to getting something done. And they're very hard to come by. So why wouldn't you reward that or seek it out more frequently? Or maybe it's just my group of friends. I don't know. No, I think it's, I think that is addressing a difference in what you say that you want, like as an employer, sorry, not you, Eugene, can you, but what employers say they want and then what they actually wind up hiring because maybe they know, you know, they talk with HR or whatever. And it's like, yes, we need someone who's responsible and trustworthy. But then you like see all these candidates and you're like, oh, I actually want like the outspoken extrovert who says things with lots of conviction. And that winds up being a guy, you yeah. know? So you just, what you said you were going to hire for and then what you actually hire for doesn't match. And maybe it's also the role that you're looking for, as you mentioned, because I think operationally, like women are really good if it's true that they're more responsible and they're trustworthy, et cetera. I mean, also so, the, those attributes are really hard to distinguish in a first interview anyway. Yeah. And I also just, I also kind of wondered if you picked this article in relation to like some of the comments I've been making about our own lack of diversity. Mm, maybe underlying, but I don't, I, I think this one stood out to me because I think visually this stuff looked cool. That yeah, that's true. The, we didn't really talk about that. Uh, at this point, I, I think it's even less about that. I think it's more <laughs> about what what the whole process behind it is. So let me ask you this. Let's end off on this note. Knowing that these two, Sagmeister and Walsh, have a really strong platform, do you think that the release of a collection of merchandise is the best way of going about it? Or is there something else they could do that's even more impactful? I think it kind of depends on what their primary goal was. And what I let's not talk about goals. Let's just talk about what you think if the goal is to create. No, no, no. See, but the thing this is different is like, I think one of their primary goals, as I understand it, is to raise money. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very effective as a way to raise money because the merchandise looks good. And anyone who doesn't even know, who is not aware at all of all of this background context will still buy the merch and that money will still go to a good cause. Good point. And I think that there's going to be a whole bunch of people like that. It was just like, oh, I love this shirt. That's a hot dog that says hot AF, you know, like literally that's it. Bye. Okay. So that's one goal. And actually, I don't know if their primary goal was to draw attention to ladies wine and design if it's so successful, because I don't really see that. Like ladies wine and design is its own. It's got like 
chapters in 80 countries. I think I'm actually saying less than there are. Like it's global. There's one in Hong Kong. Our friend Debbie Poon actually runs it, helps run it. And if it was to focus on how good that is, then I don't think it's doing that. But I also don't think that's the primary goal. But I think there are some people who would like us be looking at it or or like some young girl is looking at it. It's like, oh, there's this cool um, creative community for women in my city. But if that had been the primary idea, then I think things would have been set up differently. And I mean, everybody needs money, right? Like this is a smart way to get money to fund a thing that doesn't make any money on its own. What about you? I don't really know because I don't think I fully understand the problem at hand. Like in terms of just from a very first person point of view. I think ladies wine and design is the solution. Like, sorry, I have no filter is not the solution to supporting, to encouraging women to support women because merchandise isn't going to do that. The thing is, is that for me, and this is my approach to it all, is that when I hear about particular things, like issues that arise, it helps me further understand when solutions are being proposed from the people that it affects. So if there's no solution, I just see it as like a heads up this happened versus a heads up this happened. You can be part of the solution by doing X, Y, Z. I did have a question for you as to what, if you see you have a role in this, like in fixing a problem or in in playing some part. Yeah, I think that there has to be a role that we play in this. And me personally, I recognize the value that comes with having people of different walks of life come through the doors at Macon and just like have the ability to inject their vantage point, their experiences. And I think it's almost counter to our philosophy if we don't try to make a difference. Do you know what I mean? If we recognize there's an inefficiency or something can be better, I think it's that's my very pragmatic way of looking at it from a very, oh, is it efficient? Is it optimal? I think if I look at it from that perspective, like I always see room for improvement. And I think that if I can play a part in it or we can play a part in it and no one else is really stepping up to the plate, then why not? Not necessarily like it's both a matter of like because it's needed and because we philosophically believe in it. That's a good answer. I want to just correct myself. It's in 180 cities across the world. So I picked this exhibit that has recently opened at the Vitra Design Museum, which is near Basel, Switzerland, which I've been to. Have you been to? No. It's so good. Anyone, if you're going through Switzerland, you should go check out the Vitra Design Museum. Why is it so good? First of all, just architecturally, it is a gorgeous place. So regardless of what's on show. Listen to yourself. It's so good looking. Okay. And it's not just one. This is, you've just totally side railed the entire thing. Can't lie. This is part of why I picked this though. Um, There's like one museum building, but then there's another that's like a, um, it's a furniture showroom kind of place. Makes sense. Vitra. Yeah. Vitra. Yeah. Like a Vitra showroom. And then there's this like, water tower slash slide. There's basically, it's, it's a big park with different architectural pieces on it. Got it. So just that is already worth it, regardless of what's on show. But And the curation's good. 
Yes, the curation is good. The museum itself is actually not big. It's really just like a usually single show on at a time or two. Got it. So the one that I want to talk about today is called Night Fever. Like the exhibit itself is called Night Fever. And there was a New York Times write-up about it called How Nightclubs Became Museum Pieces. And it kind of talks about nightclubs in history like Palladium and Studio 54 and Cerebrum, which are all New York venues from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. For example, because I wasn't alive back then, and so all of this is like reading history to me. In 1985, when the Palladium opened its doors, people who attended were such as like Azadine Alaya, Warhol, Herring, and there's like this 40-foot-long Basquiat painting in a chapel room like with a vaulted ceiling, like a chapel. And then there's these 25 TV screens that apparently came down from the ceiling and did some sort of fancy rotation. Anyway, it sounds like complete spectacle and like nothing that I've been to in my life. Slash maybe wouldn't even have the opportunity to go to something like that. But also just sounded like it's talking, the exhibit is talking about these nightclubs, not just as a thing for rich people, but as a way that pushed social boundaries and strongly influenced pop culture. Yeah. I see it. In everyday kind of ways, like in ways that were for everyone and not just for someone rich to get in. And then like cover and drinks didn't even cost that much, you know? So the reason I picked this is not just, I mean, one, it's super interesting to read about the history of these nightclubs. But the reason I did pick it is to think about nightclub culture today and how very different it seems than You've never what really was in the 80s. You've never really gone to a lot of nightclubs, right? Like you're not well, really that kind of person. but the thing is like, the thing is like, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but nightclub, nightclub culture in Hong Kong- Air quotes. Yeah, air quotes. Just seems like a lot of drinking to uh, me. Nightclub culture itself has different sort of channels within it. Like I think just- the fact of going out at night can take many different avenues. Right. But I think the very act of it itself is kind of this raw, youthful energy. That yeah. Is, that's kind of the important But I feel like right now, God, I sound like such an old person just hating on life. But I feel like right now that youthful energy is being wasted in whatever night culture we in have Hong right Kong. now. I think in, in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. Sorry. In Hong Kong, slash, I'm sure in other cities too. Well, I'll get to, I'll get to that. I don't know. I think that there's always going to be things that pop up that push against, you know, these commercial super clubs. This is a bit more of a niche take on it. But Alex and I have a friend, and he's like an older gay guy, and he would always talk about what it was like to go to a gay club back in the day, and it was just like a place of security, sanctuary where you could just bring everyone together focused on, you know, particular interests, right? And I think that now that you no longer need a sort of physical congregation, you can still find the right people to connect with. You just no longer need to have this unifying place to do it. So that could be another reason why these clubs don't really exist anymore. Right. Well, there is one argument that I buy, which is that activities that might have happened at night in the past have been switched to happening during the day. So the elements of nightclubs that I'm interested, the part where it's like experimental art and immersive environments, like those exist as 
you know, museum exhibits or music festivals. And those things were kind of adopted by mainstream brands and commercial entities, which legitimized them and made it so that it didn't have to happen at night in nightclubs anymore. Yeah. So basically the commercialization of things plus social media. But it did make me wonder, okay, like that's fine. Like this is the trajectory of things. Does, is there still a role for nightclubs or people who are interested in doing things at night to continue to push existing social boundaries? Like if the norm now is music festivals and interesting museum installations, is there something different that nightclub people could be suggesting that would be, you know, outrageous for us now? I don't know. Maybe it's just that the nightclub itself existed because there were no options. And now there are options. It's, it's made redundant. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that you had to do certain things at night for whatever reason, but now it's like, you want to listen to music? Oh, Spotify. You want to go meet with your friends? Use, you know, use something to coordinate that. There's so many more things to do. And then we've, we've always talked about this. Like, it's so difficult to get someone on board to do any certain thing and to commit to anything right now, period, that the place that is almost guaranteed to have somebody around is like your couch. You know what I mean? Like you're always going to, that you could sit on your couch and find 50 million things to do. Netflix. Right. Multi-screen on your phone. Right. But there are still, and this is something the article said, is that there's still very high value in nighttime culture. And in Hong Kong, we can see that in evidence by LKF and all of the people that there that are there every day of the week. Yeah. So if so many people w- are out say, anyway, is there something that can be done more interestingly? I mean, drug culture, that's where you would naturally gravitate towards, right? I'm just making this up. It, it would never fly, but like, that's part of the reason why nightlife culture is so vibrant because of all the illicit substances done at night, right? Mm. That's the one thing that you probably can't really do openly. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you could, but I'm, I'm just I'm not like, suggesting, I'm not on that, the air suggesting <laughs> certain illegal activities. I just think that if so many people are out drinking and dancing and in some version of bars and clubs anyway, it would be cool to see clubs and bars do suggest something that was more experimental. But uh, I think the value also comes down to not necessarily what happens in those settings, but what happens afterwards based on the level of trust and connection made in those settings. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, something that I guess we don't do in nightclubs anymore is this idea of meeting other artists and other designers. Yeah. Or maybe there are people that do that and I'm just not one of them. No, I'm sure it still exists. I just think that it... I don't know how I put this. I'm trying to actually think of the most recent experience I had in a club like last week in Singapore. Wait, you were in a club last week in Singapore? Yeah. What are you living? Crazy Rich Asians? No, I had to, I had to go with a bunch of people. It was weird. I, <laughs> well, it's just like... <laughs> what? It's just weird because like... I, I, this is my favorite segment. Please tell us about the time you were in a club in Singapore. Went to this place called Bang Bang. <laughs> yeah. Bang bang. It was just weird because like it it felt as though so when you're younger, you go to the club and you see some dudes posted up in a booth 
And you're like, oh man, those old dudes are only there because they got bottle service, right? And I was like, oh, I'm now that group, right? <laughs> so you're like, fuck. Like, I mean, I, it's not like I was hanging out in the booth. I was like, oh, you know what? Friends are here. Let's just like do whatever. Like it wasn't that I knew everyone there. It was like someone had invited us. But it was just interesting to see it all play out because, I mean, people were there to dance. I guess that's the one thing that you probably want to do. Yeah, you know, people if you want still to want dance, to dance. If you want to dance, like that's what the club's good for. But it was just like the whole, everything was meant to be postable on social media. If you know what I mean? Oh, like really? a mascot would come out in a pink bear suit. It would be like. A mascot? <laughs> yeah. And you know what it's like when uh, people order bottles and they have like the sparklers? Yes. Like they I have the sparklers plus a girl wearing like a Daft Punk inspired like helmet with LEDs on the front. Like it was just weird shit like that. But I mean, maybe someone thinks that's cool. I don't know. I've never really thought that was cool. Right. Like popping bottles is not really my thing. Did you ever have a club experience where you thought, oh, this is pretty cool? I don't know. The last time I was in a club wasn't. Dude, this is like this. This sounds hella like. Dude, it also changes when you have a significant other. Like there's no reason to go to a club anymore. Yeah. Okay. Now I have two things to say. One is since you shared the last time you were in a club, the last time I was in a club um, was actually as much as six weeks ago, I think. And it was the cake shop Yeti party for Art Basel. And while I can't say that anything super exciting happened while I was present there in the venue. No, it was at, um, what is that place called? After Dark and Beyond. Is it kind of like Rio? It's not as shady as Rio. Okay, so Rio is like this weird club in Wan Chai, which in the front is just like filled with a lot of professional women. It's probably the best way of putting it. And then the back is kind of like this little sidebar. Yeah, it's not like that, but it's still really tight. Anyway, but the only part of that that was like the clubs I'm describing from the 80s is that I met everyone I had been meeting from that week there. Yeah. Because it was Art Basel week. So it was, and I did meet like the artist friends of people like I'd already met that week. So it did have that vibe. Yeah. Which might be exceptional, like for being that period of time. The other thing I wanted to say is you're totally right. It's different when you have a significant other. And we're also not that young anymore. As evidenced by you saying like now you and your friends are the old people in the booth with bottle service. The crusty ass Right. So I think what I'm suggesting, I don't have a solution for this or I I don't know exactly the description of what I'm proposing, but there are younger people than us, right? 16 to 22 that have lots of energy and go out really hard. And it would be cool if that was more creative in some way than just getting extremely drunk and extremely high. I think you're you're overinflating the value of the club in terms of creative output. Maybe I think like I think it's night more culture about, as a whole. I think it's more about connectivity. Is there Oh, you know what's another thing that I think also contributes to this weird sort of relationship with going out now is that you can't really get super hammered anymore because everyone has a phone and like that's the one thing I always hated was like I don't want to be doing some foolish shit 
and be super drunk and then some randoms like taking a video of me or something. Okay. Yeah. Society now has self-surveillance. Uh, Wait, yeah. let me finish my thought. Okay. Is that I think this is what I'm suggesting. I'm, I don't think I'm overstating. Okay, maybe I was overstating the importance of nightclubs. What I'm suggesting is that there is a difference in atmosphere and what can happen depending on an event's location and time of day. Like maybe something is achieved just by an event happening at 11 p.m. as opposed to 11 a.m. And by happening in just a difference of venue. And some things are more appropriate than others. And I, I think what I'm just saying is that there seems to be a lack like, of opportunities at night and in clubby areas. I mean, you're using the, the, the cloak of darkness to do shady shit. That's all it comes down to. I guess so. That's but- all it, I think that's all it comes down to. But I just don't, I mean, I guess you're right in that and in this day and age, so many things that used to be frowned upon like dancing or certain ways of dress are now legitimate. So what's left? What's left to be considered, you know, need, needing to be under the shade of darkness besides what you've already suggested? I don't know. Because like back in the 80s, it did make sense because, yeah, I guess I agree, but also am... Let's leave this to the, yeah, let's just leave it to the listeners and see if anyone has any suggestions on what's better to do at night than go and get ripped at a club. Good place to end things off for the day. If you are interested in learning more about Macon and reading and listening to more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can head over to Macon.com. If you really like this podcast, please do us a favor and share with a friend. Uh, give us a review. And if for whatever reason you're not familiar with our Making Story feed, that's where we publish all our stories that we release every week. Also, if you like this podcast, you can review us on iTunes. I said that. You said that? No, you didn't. I said review. I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs> you should leave in my I wasn't paying attention.